Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Louis Alexander Berg about his book titled Governing Security After War, The Politics of Institutional Change in the Security Sector, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. The book does a very helpful thing, I found, in examining security systems as a component of peace building and particularly after countries are coming out of conflict. Um, but there's a very mixed record of how well these efforts actually do what they say they're going to do or help the country. And this book very helpfully examines a number of these cases, offers us ways of understanding this, um, and potentially even ways forward. So Alex, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about your book. Sure. Thank you very much for for having me. Um, it's, It's a pleasure. I'm very glad. Before we get into your book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, So I'm an associate professor of political science at Georgia State University. I um, do research uh, looking at civil wars and and organized violence, and I'm especially interested in in how states and international organizations and institutions um, either contribute to or prevent large-scale violence like civil war. Um, And as part of that, I've been looking especially at the role of security forces, military police, um, as well as the effects of uh, security aid and other forms of international assistance. Um, so, you know, h- how did this book come about? Well, uh, before before I, w- I was a professor, before I even had a PhD, I worked for several years in government um, and in international organizations, uh, including the World Bank and, and the United Nations. And I, um, I worked on international development projects, especially in countries coming out of civil war, um, especially focusing on, on, on programs that were aimed at building or rebuilding or strengthening state institutions, right? So in development speak, what's, what's called governance. And the, these programs were, were kind of done on a, on a pretty sound logical premise, right? That state institutions are essential to contain violence, to prevent violence, and also to provide basic services, deal with the underlying sources of conflict. Um, 
And the, the problem was there, there wasn't actually a, a good amount of knowledge in terms of how this could be done, especially what the role of international actors were. The kind of typical approach is you, you bring in people who have experience working in, say, the police or the justice system or elections in, in other countries, um, and you ask them to advise, okay, let's see if we can uh, replicate some of what we've done in our country in terms of the laws or the procedures or training or skills. And if we bring that to this country, these institutions uh, will work better. Um, unfortunately, there's very little evidence at the time, especially when I, when I was doing this, of any of these programs working or not. Some of that has, has improved, um, but also not a lot of evidence of uh, institutions developing in this way um, in, in the role of international actors. So in part, I was sort of frustrated by this lack of evidence, which, which kind of motivated me to, to do some more research. But I also had, had the sense that, you know, while international actors, development people like me were um, trying to work on one level, we were really missing what was really going on. Um, and I'll just share kind of a brief anecdote um, I, of uh, one experience that I had. Uh, I, I did quite a lot of work in Haiti in the kind of mid 2000s um, and, um, and late 2000s. And I remember sitting one time out of, uh, outside of the office of the Minister of Justice in Haiti, um, kind of sitting in the waiting room um, to have a meeting to discuss our programs. Um, and, you know, we're, we're uh, sort of sitting here, you know, development actors trying to kind of get, get audience with the minister who at the time, who the Minister of Justice was uh, overseeing the judiciary um, or the justice uh, system as well as the police. And we're sitting in this waiting room and um, there's kind of a steady stream of people coming in and out uh, for what seems like a, a really long time. And unfortunately, we can hear some of the overhear some of the conversations. And a lot of these conversations are people coming in um, asking for favors, right? Asking for uh, intervention in, in specific legal cases, asking for jobs um, for, for people's um, relatives or, or friends or, or, or what have you. Um, and, and it struck me as this is, you know, this is a huge part of this person, this minister of justice's job, um, not only because people are asking him, but because that's actually central to keeping his job. The way power works is you, you know, you, you, um, you have to satisfy your constituents. And, and that's the, in, in this kind of context, um, that is a, through these informal relationships, through uh, allocating jobs to people that matter. Um, and ultimately, this, this has a big effect on what development actors are trying to do in terms of institutions, right? If they're appointing friends and family members instead of um, people who we think they should be appointed based on merit, right? That's going to have an effect on, on these institutions, right? So it's this, it's this disconnect between, you know, we're trying to operate at the role of policies and procedures, while the people who are um, uh, operating in this context really have a different kind of uh, uh, a game, a, diff a, a, a different set of um, priorities. Um, and it's this disconnect between these two things that I, I think r really was was puzzling to me um, and what I really want to try to get at um, with this book. And so, you know, after many twists and turns, and um, I, I finally was able to, to write this book to try to understand, right, how politics within countries affect um, the way that these international interventions, international development programs actually actually work. Thank you for that backstory. It's useful to sort of hear how an idea comes to be. And um, sort of staying on that theme, obviously, as you said, the twists and turns between then and now, what then has that led to in terms of the development of the sort of, you know, academically phrased empirical theoretical puzzle that the book focuses on? 
Sure. So the main research question of the book is why some states um, coming out of civil war adopt changes to security institutions, um, so police and military, that put them on a track to to more professional, more responsive, more effective um, security forces. Right. So why do some states adopt these changes and not others? Uh, so this is, you know, a, a common um, a, a common set of activities, especially as part of large peace building missions, but also as part of security assistance and um, other activities, you know, in, in a variety of contexts that international actors are trying to influence um, the police and the military to make them more professional, more effective to address the objectives that they want. Um, and there's there's quite a lot of literature and, and there was a lot of uh, some literature at the time um, on these kind of international peace building missions, and most of them are basically pointing out the flaws and the limitations of, of, of international actors um, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but it turns out there's actually quite a lot of variation, right? So there's there are um, plenty of cases in which uh, the, they didn't, international actors did not achieve their goals, but there are plenty of cases in which there were really some remarkable transformations, both in terms of, of peace, right, in terms of countries not going back to war, but also in terms of institutions, right? So countries like Sierra Leone or, or Liberia or El Salvador, um, Namibia, right, just to, to name a few. Uh, and there's not much kind of attention to, well, what is it that, that actually happens that allowed these kinds of, this kind of success to happen? Um, and if you kind of take a, a closer look, the fact that there were these institutional changes, especially in the security institutions, is actually quite puzzling. Um, when you think about security forces as being really a central component of political power, political authority, right? Think about this minister in Haiti that I just mentioned, um, whose ability to allocate jobs to people, whose ability to deploy uh, security forces is, is often critical to their power. And so why would um, political leaders really willingly constrain themselves by adopting all of these recommendations of, of international actors? Um, and so there's there's not, the literature doesn't really provide us a, a good answer to this. Um, so if you if you look, for example, at the um, literature on civil military relations, which does look quite a lot of uh, at, at military institutions and oversight, um, the, the, the general answer on, you know, why are there changes in the institutions is because of external threat, right? So if a country is facing dire external threat, they're going to do what it takes to get their institutions in order. Well, we're dealing with countries facing internal threats primarily, um, and which have all of the characteristics that the literature suggests are going to continue sort of along kind of informal politicized institutions. Um, there, there, um, you could look at the conflict literature, right? So there's a lot of literature on the peacekeeping, on the end of civil war, on bargaining, bargaining dif- between different war- warring parties. That doesn't really get at, well, what happens where after countries agree to lay down their weapons, right? There's some look at, okay, things like military integration, like military reforms can actually make peace um, stick um, and, 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 and get there. But there hasn't been, there wasn't um, as much look at, well, what about, um, uh, when do those uh, provisions actually get implemented, right? It turns out a lot of, about, you know, o- over half of milita- military integration provisions don't get um, implemented. Um, so why is that? Why in some countries does it work and some countries does it, does it not work? And there's much less attention to that kind of post-war when the countries are at peace, um, uh, what accounts for institutional change. Um, and then the final place to look, of, of, of course, is the peace building and international aid literature, which, as I mentioned, basically suggests, well, international actors don't really have much influence. They, you know, they're, they're, um, they're not set up to, to really influence institutions. 
Um, or the kind of common uh, answer in the policy literature, well, well, it all depends on political will, right? So if, if there's no political will, we can't have institutional change. And that's often kind of what you hear in, in policy documents. Um, and so I want to know, well, what is this political will that everybody's talking about? Where does it come from? Um, and uh, what is it about the politics of a place that makes uh, institutional change uh, possible or not? Um, and so what I what I want to look is beyond the the kind of um, beyond where the conflict literature looks, which is really at this kind of civil war termination, um, immediate post war phase, to the post post war phase, um, where the bargaining between war and parties between becomes be- becomes day to day politics, right? Bargaining over distribution of resources, um, and how does that shape what happens in the security forces? Um, and ultimately, I, I think you know what 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 I'm what I'm trying to do is understand how security institutions function, um, why they change in these contexts, um, which has you know is is important for these for post conflict peace building missions. It's also important, I think, um, for things that we we want to look at now. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later um, in terms of uh, the the role of the military, uh, recent coups um, in, in in several. Uh, countries around the world, kind of understanding wh- why the militaries function the way they do, um, and what international actors can can do about that. Brilliant! Thank you for taking us through the multiple puzzles and sort of how they link and what the questions are. Can you, in a sort of a similarly challenging question, I suppose, is a big question that I'm going to ask you to answer, sort of in an overview, concise form. Can you introduce us to your central argument a bit? Sure. So um, the the central argument is uh, that these changes, right, decisions um, and decisions by decision makers, right. So politicians, people have who have the power and authority to make decisions about laws and appointments and and, and resources. Um, that decisions to make changes um, to security institutions reflect internal political struggles, um, and more specifically, you see these kinds of institutional change changes in post war scenarios. When you have a political leadership that's vulnerable, um, when they have threats from within their own party or within their own coalition, um, that forces them to make institutional change. Uh, and and I look at that vulnerability um, in terms of the uh, the ways that um, that elites, that people in power, um, maintain security forces through informal means, through networks and resources. When those uh, are not sufficient, when they they don't reliably um, ensure loyalty or control over the security forces, um, that really opens the uh, the door to other ways of managing the security forces. Um, the other thing that that vulnerability does is it creates openings for external support. So what you have, especially in countries where there's a lot of uh, international assistance, um, that leaders who face threats internally end up relying on external actors, not only for resources, but for political support, for political backing. And that leads to a higher amount of cooperation um, and ultimately influence than you see in other places. Um, and so what what the, the, the central argument basically is that where you have the internal political alignment that creates interests, political interests in reform, that's when you have opportunities for institutional change. Um, and so it's understanding what the book does is try to understand well, when, when and how do those opportunities come about. And one of the ways that you investigate that in the book is through case studies. So can you tell us which case studies you examine and explain how you chose to look at these? 
Sure. So the the book has uh, a couple, a, a few different empirical sections, right? So I do a uh, cross national quantitative analysis uh, where I look at uh, co- correlations um, at, uh, across all countries coming out of civil war, and then I have three in depth case studies. Uh, the case studies are Liberia, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Timor Leste. Um, and then I have these kind of shorter shadow cases, uh, which extend the argument to other situations beyond uh, post-conflict. Um, in terms of the main cases, Bosnia, Liberia, and, and Timor, um, these are cases which uh, we can call most likely for the argument to work, right? So for, for, for most likely from the perspective of kind of the, the, the prevailing wisdom, right? So these are intensive cases of international uh, assistance. There are large UN operations. There are um, troops, UN troops on the ground, right? These are places where uh, international assistance, if, if it's going to work anywhere, if it's going to have influence anywhere, it should work in these places, right? So I wanted to choose cases kind of giving international assistance sort of the best shot. Um, but even among these cases, right, you see quite a lot of variation in terms of the outcome of security institutions, right? And so by kind of maintaining that, that sort of you know, cases with high level of international assistance, that allows us to look more closely at variations in internal politics. Um, and that's what I do. And so each case uh, varies along the, the kind of main variables that I'll, I'll look at. And then within each country, I actually look at two cases. So I do some subnational comparisons. Um, I look at either compare either the military and police or um, in the case of Timor, I look at the police in two time periods. And that really allows me to hold a lot constant, right, in terms of the country, in terms of the situation, um, but show how variations kind of either around different security forces or over time um, accounts for for um, the, the outcome. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I set up my cases. Um, and I go through in, in quite a lot of detail, both in terms of the context, the background, the politics, but how uh, international um, assistance operates in the security space. Um, and I, I, I conducted hundreds of, of interviews in, in, in these three countries. Um, I actually also did research in Sierra Leone that didn't make it into the book, um, but I did quite a lot of uh, field work, um, collected tons of documents, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, with evidence on, on different pieces of the argument, and then did a lot of interviews to understand well how these decisions were actually made and what were the press, pressures that came to bear and ultimately how, what were the political considerations that, that drove decisions in, in each case. Wonderful. Well, we're definitely going to get into those case studies um, further on. But first off, uh, now that we have kind of an overview of a number of the pieces here, can we go into a bit more detail about your theory of security governance and what it suggests about when institutionalized governance is most likely to emerge? Absolutely. So security governance, first of all, what, what do we mean by security governance? I've, I've kind of mentioned it briefly, alluded to it um, already. Um, by definition that I present in the book of security governance are the rules, laws, policies, and practices through which leaders exercise authority over security forces, right? It's basically how political leaders, right? So, so those with political authority um, makes sure that the security forces, the military and the police and other uh, authorities um, do what they want, right? Um, and, and don't actually uh, um, undermine them, right? So this... Um, 
in this kind of addresses a core concern in a, a large literature on civil mili- military relations, right? That when you have actors with pa- with 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 um, with weapons with coercive power, right? It sort of creates a, a dilemma for politicians in that they want to be sufficiently powerful to do their job, but also not too powerful to threaten them. Um, so, in the civil military relations literature, there's there's a, uh, a, 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 a quite a um, uh, a lot of look at um, examination of how states do this. Um, and so I draw from some of this basically looking at sort of three functions of, of these institutions, right? So one is to align the interests of security personnel, right? This is through things like recruitment policies, um, training, right? To make sure that they're they're loyal to kind of ultimately what civilians are trying to do or what politicians are trying to do. Um, the second is to monitor them uh, through things like procedures um, and um oversight mechanisms. And the third is, is to enforce their uh, rules and, and sanction them when they uh, um, when they uh, go against them, right? So things like disciplinary systems, as well as withholding budgets and that, and that kind of thing, right? So that's, that's kind of the, 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 the oversight systems and um, uh, processes through which political authorities maintain the security forces, right? So that's kind of how it works kind of in, in, in Western democratic contexts. Um, it turns out in most of the world, and even to some extent in Western democratic co- contexts, um, the way that we, that um, states do this, that, that politicians do that is not through these formal mechanisms, but through much more informal kind of traditional ways, right? So um, through, through informal networks, Right. So rather than using kind of uh, merit based recruitment strategies, uh, people are pointed, especially to senior positions in the military and in the police on the basis of their affiliation as part of an ethnic network, a sectarian network. Right. What's often called ethnic stacking in in the civil literature. Um, um, So it's relying on informal networks. Right. There's reliance on rents. Right. Distributing resources, uh, whether it's through contracts or um, uh, allowing, um, uh, senior officers to kind of, you know, hire people or, or, uh, distribute jobs. Um, and this, you know, in, in, in contrast to what we would like to see in Western democratic con, uh, context requires things to be quite opaque, right? So that, that resources and budgets and personnel can be manipulated. Um, another way this is done is through counterbalancing strategies, right? So creating multiple security forces that sort of spy on each other, um, and, and make sure that none is going to challenge the regime, right? So this is sort of the way that things are done, right? This is what I call kind of politicized or informal forms of, of security governance. Um, you could think of lots of examples of this, right? So, you know, think of Iraq, right, where a lot of the security forces under, you know, after 2003 were kind of stacked with ethnic members of ethnic militias, right, so, um, so that they could um, remain loyal to the uh, prime minister um, and also so that they could do their political bidding, right? And this is kind of a key kind of in, insight here is that um, these kind of informal politicized me- means of security forces are not only a way to maintain loyalty to make sure that they don't challenge the regime, it also gives the politicians a lot of um, leeway to use the security forces politically, right? So the ability to deploy um, the police or, or the military to repress opponents, right? Um, you know, the, the, the fact that you've got loyal people who are members of, of your ethnic network gives you the leeway to do that. The ability to appoint leaders um, that are members of politi- uh, politically important constituencies, Right to to appoint friends and relatives, or to appoint members of different parties. Right, um, all of these in, in in many ways uh, are central to 
staying in power for, for politicians. And so having this kind of informal, politicized control over security forces is often central to, to political power. And so this raises the question that, that I raised earlier, which is why in some places where, where, where these kinds of practices are prevailing, which is actually in, in, in much of the world, um, why would uh, governments kind of willingly change that and sort of constrain those and, and impose greater transparency, merit-based recruitment, all these things that we think are going to lead to more professionalism and effectiveness. And there's actually quite a lot of evidence that, that they do. Um, but why would they then give up all of the discretion that they have to kind of use the security forces um, politically? Um, and so, and, and the answer that I propose um, in, in my book um, is that as I said, it's when they're vulnerable politically, but specifically because the networks and the resources that they need to maintain control informally are not reliable, right? They can't use them. Um, and that's because on the one hand, the networks, right, that um, underpin um, the ruling party um, are too fragmented to be reliably deployed in the security forces, right? So what do I mean by fragmented, right? So, so for example, I, I mentioned Iraq, right? So um, you know, the, the ability to maintain um, uh, loyalty in the security forces through informal networks often relies on kind of a cohesive network, an ethnic network, a sectarian network, so that you can put, you know, people of your ethnic group in the top positions and um, use kind of informal ties to monitor them um, and to uh, encourage them to, to remain loyal, Right. In many places, uh, leaders don't have that kind of cohesive network. Um, there may be a coalition government or there are multiple factions. Uh, none of them is, is sort of big enough or, or reliable enough. Uh, often to build a coalition, leaders end up appointing members of, of rival parties um, into the security forces. And what you end up with is a military or police right, full of uh, leaders from different factions. Um, and that is, is, leads to all kinds of problems in terms of loyalty and in terms of monitoring, right? Um, so when, when they have that kind of fragmented network, right, the, the, the costs of um, adopting institutional changes actually goes lower and actually might be beneficial to put in place um, oversight systems and merit-based recruitment because that will actually minimize the, the power, the ability of, of rivals within the security forces to challenge the regime, right? So on the one hand, this kind of fragmented network um, creates opportunities. Um, the, and the other piece is the availability of rents, right? So even if you have this kind of fragment, fragmented network, um, if you have sufficient access to r rents that you can distribute at your, at your discretion, for example, oil wealthy countries, right? There's a lot of money coming into central government coffers and they can um, allocate that in ways that, that'll maintain loyalty. Um, without those kinds of resources, once again, there's sort of no reliable way to, to maintain power. Now, having kind of a fragmented networks and um, absence of um, concentrated revenue or, or rents um, may not be sufficient. Uh, leaders still try to use informal strategies like counterbalancing um, or appointing sort of uh, members of their own networks and security forces to, to spy and, and, and monitor. Um, but that's often um, unreliable. It leads to a high risk of, of, of coup d'etat. Um, and and but it, but it um, uh, may not be sufficient to adopt institutional changes. What you have in many post-conflict contexts is you also have external support. Um, and where you have external support, external actors can often act to kind of compensate, to, to substitute for um, internal mechanisms control, right, by having outside advisors monitor the security forces, by providing resources that they can use to distribute. Um, but the more uh, reliant uh, um, political actors, elites are 
on external support, um, the in order to kind of maintain power politically and maintain loyalty internally, right? The greater leverage and influence that gives to outside actors, right? So this kind of internal vulnerability as a result of fragmented networks um, and, uh, and and the absence of, of uh, concentrated resources creates opportunities for external influence, right? And so that's where you get op- internal opportunities for um, change and where you have greater in, um, influence. And these openings create opportunities for different ways of interacting between external and domestic actors, right? It creates greater leverage. It creates opportunities for more collaboration. And that's where you tend to have these sort of major changes where in ac- external actors, um, often bilateral donors or, or the UN, are acting collaboratively in cooperation with leaders and you get um, this kind of institutional change. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the argument in a nutshell. And what I do in, in the case studies is, is show both how the context creates these opportunities but also in detail how this how inter- the interaction between international actors and domestic uh, um, elites um, varies as, uh, in function of the, the um, political context. So can we, in fact, do a little bit of that now? Obviously, in not nearly the same level as detail as the book, but to give at least a highlights version of it, um, can we turn to Liberia and discuss how elites' responses to political pressures shape decisions about how military and police should be governed in roughly the first decade after the conflict ended? Yeah, so Liberia is a, is a is a really interesting case, right? It's this case that's often pointed to as the success of uh, U.S. security sector reform and security assistance um, in the military, the police also sort of sort of more mixed. Um, and uh, the, the, the reasons that are often given for this, um, one is that, you know, the U.S. had a lot of assistance, right, and, and, and just provided the, the, you know, sufficient amount of assistance and concentrated. In fact, um, the, the amount of assistance was actually quite low, right? This was happening in 2003 to 2010, and it was a, a small fraction of what the U.S. was providing in Iraq, for example, um, which did, did not go nearly as well. I, mean, I can we can talk about that later if you want. Um but, you know, the, the other reason that's given is, well, they had great leadership, right? Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia, um, really took these sort of courageous decisions, which is true. But it turns out a lot of the major decisions actually happened even before she came into power, right? And that's so, so these are not sufficient explanations. Um, and so what I look at in Liberia is, is sort of the internal politics. Um, so the, the security forces in, in Liberia, the military, the police, these are your kind of classic politicized security forces. Right? The military actually started off um, uh, as what was called the frontier force. Uh, it was by um, dominated by American Liberians, right? So uh, Liberia was, um, as you probably know, was um, established as a settler colony for freed slaves from the United States who were kind of resettled in West Africa and Liberia, right? And they basically created this beachhead um, in Monrovia and had constant issues with the indigenous population of the area. And so there's constant fighting. The frontier force was basically the indigenous, the American Liberians attempt to kind of uh, uh, maintain peace against the indigenous uh, population. Um, as that evolved over time, they started forcibly recruiting indigenous Liberians, but it was always sort of dominated by American Liberians. Um, this evolved, there is a, a coup in 1980 in which the indigenous groups took over and, and then there were sort of tribal divisions within the security forces um, where it was dominated, dominated by certain ethnic groups against others, right? So the military is dominated by one ethnic group. It's used to repress other ethnic groups. Um, this kind of continues through the Civil War. Um, the police start, starts off more professionally, um, but over the course of the Civil War, basically uh, th- through a series of peace agreements, 
all the different um, rebel factions start appointing people in the police. And so again, you've got this sort of factionalized um, police force, which is uh, geared primarily to, to um, repress opponents um, and fight this uh, fight against insurgencies rather than uh, pr- provide public safety. All right, so you've got these highly politicized security forces during the Civil War. Um, in 2003, there's a peace agreement. Um, the, as part of the peace agreement, there's a commitment to reform both the military and the police, um, and that the U.S. In, will support the military restructuring, and the U.N. will support the police um, restructuring. Um, what that what they that means it's left quite vague in the peace agreement. Um, but what they decide to do is they set up this commission of all the former rebel leaders and, and government, um, where they very quickly agree that the best thing to do is divide up the military and basically uh, all the different factions get to put their fighters into the military, and so you have kind of an integrated military. Um, so this so this is all kind of under a, a power uh, power sharing government that comes um, right after the peace agreement. Um, the the minister of defense at the time, um, uh, a man named Daniel Shea, was actually the minister of defense under the former president Charles Taylor. Um, this is this plan is is quite a problem for him because basically you're talking about a a group of um, insurgent leaders and insurgents in the military who were his sworn enemies during the war, right? You're coming out of a war in which the, the minister of defense was actually fighting against all these people, right? Um, and so this is, you know, seems quite disastrous and problematic, right? Um, this is a power sharing government. The minister of defense really has no real power um, other than kind of sitting atop this ministry. And so sees this plan as, as, as really quite problematic. Um, fortunately for him, the U.S. also sees it as problematic to create a, a new military force that's a group of insurgents. And so they propose an alternative plan, which would basically disband the entire military and start a new recruitment from scratch. Um, and so kind of around the back or despite this commission, the Minister of Defense in the U.S. sort of make the first step and agree to this kind of total restructuring plan. Um, and so that's the first step where you have this like totally vulnerable minister who decides to do this kind of out of his own um, political and, and, and really survival interests. Um, but what's interesting is that the, uh, the the government that comes in place, right? So there's an election in 2005. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is elected as the first woman president in Africa, um, and she actually can't in her campaign is really critical of this plan, right? This is a this is a um, compromising Liberian sovereignty. Um, this is uh, you know having the U.S. impose what they want to do um, on, on the country's military. This is costly. It's, you know, they're create, they're going to shrink the military. They're going to disband it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so she's quite critical, but once she comes into power from basically from the get go, um, embraces the, the U S plan and really cooperates with it. Um, and it's, it's, it's really interesting kind of to kind of see how this unfolds, um, within the political context of Liberia, right? So, so here again, we have Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is, is elected, um, but she is in this really uh, fragmented uh, uh, political situation um, and is quite vulnerable politically, right? So she's elected in the second round of a runoff. Um, in order to win the election, she needs the support of the, per- the third person who came in third, um, Prince Johnson, who's a former rebel leader, from, former rebel leader a powerful politician um, from Lofa County who basically agrees to support her, and that is what allows her to win. Um, there's, there are 21 different parties in the legislature, uh, people who are former rebel leaders, uh, who control a lot of the country's assets. Um, and 
Johnson Sirleaf's party has uh, some, somewhere around 11 seats out of 100 in the legislature, right? So in order to do anything, in order to govern, she has to negotiate. She has to make deals with all of these, you know, quite unsavory characters um, in, in order to do anything. And, that, and that's, that's basically what she does across different parts of the government. And you see all kinds of different compromises, um, some of which are quite frustrating for international actors. In the military, once again, um, this, is, this is quite problematic um, because, you know, Johnson Sirleaf herself had been part of a government in, that was deposed uh, by a coup in 1980. She understands the power and the, the risk that the military poses. Um, and she decides that, that rather than uh, trying to kind of, kind of make deals and negotiate with the military, she's going to cooperate with the U.S., and the U.S. really, the U.S. backing really helps kind of avoid what could be a disastrous situation of having a military kind of dominated by different factions. Um, the other uh, factor, of course, right? So in terms of in addition to fragmented network, right? Uh, Liberia has no real resources at this point; is completely dependent on the U.S. Um, but that's not sufficient without kind of the internal fragmentation. Um, and so, in in the book, I have kind of sort of all kinds of fascinating. Um, uh, uh, accounts from the defense minister under Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Brownie Samakai, as well as other senior officials, talking about how they use uh, U.S. assistance to navigate internal pressures. Right. So, um, you know, when they're when they're doing the recruitment process, um, the minister talks about how all these different factions are saying, you know, please, you know, accept my people in, accept my people in. And he basically says, you know what, I can't, it's the U.S. is in charge. There's nothing I can do about it, which, of course, is not true. Right? The U.S. is part of the process. Um, Brownie Samakai could sort of push for different people to get in, um, but it is, is within his interest politically not to. And he's able to kind of use, use U.S. support to, to justify that. Um, and so um, I, I, and, and, and that kind of allows this whole process to happen in which they create a sort of, you know, brand new, um, diverse um, military with with a, a new ministry. They overhaul the Ministry of Defense, um, put in place whole sets of uh, procedures for recruitment, uh, for budgetary oversight, um, uh, for military justice. Right, all the different pieces um, that you would expect. Um, and there's quite there is a lot of negotiation right within this, um, but there's also a lot of collaboration and cooperation. And I, and I think what's the the kind of key um, insights here. Um, is one that this made political sense, right? It made political sense for Daniel Che, and it made political sense for um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf to make this reform, right? Her interests in this case were quite aligned with those of the U.S. in, in the kind of reforms that they wanted. Um, the, the other kind of, I, I think, insight here is that, you know, the, the kind of um, relationship that we sort of uh, imagine in these cases, which is that, you know, the, the international actor is is sort of trying to persuade the domestic actor to do this, right? They're basically coercing them or bargaining them and say, do this, you know, otherwise we're, we're going to, you know, not give you the aid. Um, there is some of this happening, um, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. And, and at, at core, what's actually happening is because there is sort of a fundamental alignment on, um, on interests in terms of uh, uh, what to do, what to do about it. A lot of the bargaining is happening in, internally, right? So it's it's getting um, using U.S. backing to sort of bargain domestically with different actors who want different things, um, and it's bargaining around around the margins, right? And then there's also a lot of just agreements um, and just working through the details in, in much more collaborative strategies. Um, so that's that's the the sort of briefly the case of of the Liberian military. Um, the the police is is uh, more of a mixed situation. Um, 
police generally are in some ways harder to do this for than the military in part because they're much more connected uh, to the um, uh, to, to the local population, right? The military can kind of go in their barracks and get reform and come out. The police are operating day to day. And so they're much more subject to kind of day to day pressure. Um, the support to the police is, is more disparate. It's the UN. There's many different countries involved. So it's, it's harder. Um, and so you see uh, more of the kind of, uh, you know, navigating different factions um, by appointing different people within the police. Um, but overall, it goes kind of generally in the direction um, that, that the UN is pushing for. And there's also an overhaul of the police. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thank you for taking us through that case study. Um, it's a good example of kind of why we often look at and study Liberia, um, because it is so interesting to see these different um, aspects come together politically in terms of time, the internally external um, in discussion in a lot of ways with each other. But I think we will probably move on from Liberia now, despite the fact that there's so much more we could discuss about that case study, and turn uh, to Bosnia and Herzegovina, because I think this has a lot of way, in a lot of ways, is kind of the starkest puzzle, at least I read it that way, because the question is actually quite simple. Why did external actors succeed in restructuring the armed forces of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but not its police force? Yeah, so that's exactly, it's a good question. And there's there's more puzzles about Bosnia too, right? Which is why this really intensive um, uh, international assistance in which the international community actually through, through the office of the high representative actually had um, some levels of sovereignty which they, they could impose reforms. Um, and yet still, they were not able to get some of the things done that they were that they wanted to. Um, and yet you do see this reform on the military and not on the police. So, so why is that? Um, and what the case of Bosnia really highlights for me in, in my book is its variation on the, the kinds of networks that underpin the ruling party and how they play out in the security forces. Um, so, so in, in contrast to, to Liberia, the Bosnians really had these, these sort of strong, cohesive, ethnically based networks. And the uh, Dayton Peace Accord, which ended the civil war in Bosnia right, in 1995, uh, really reinforced the political power of these networks. Um, so the um, just briefly, right, so the, there was a civil war in Bosnia. It ended with the Dayton Accords. The Dayton Accords created this complex structure in which you had these two entities, the Republic of Srpska and the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, within the federation, there were 10, content, 10 cantons and a couple of autonomous entities, right? So you had 
Um, and so each entity had its own army, the Republika Srpska army, the Federation army. The Federation army was actually an amalgamation of two armies, a, a Croat army and a, and a Bos- Bosnian Muslim army. Um, and then you had each canton had its own police force. You had thir- so two armies, 13 police forces. Uh, and you had all these wild stories about, you know, when the, the army sort of, you know, remaining suspicious and not cooperating. But then with the police, right, and, and Bosnia is not a very big country, but you'd have all these wild stories about criminals kind of, you know, stealing a car in one place and then driving to the next canton, right? And the, because the police didn't trust each other, they wouldn't talk to each other. So they would just let the criminal go, right? So you had this really unwieldy kind of situation and the international community um, tried to fix it. The problem was that um, the Dayton courts, basically the, the way it was set up, uh, empowered these ethnically based um, parties, the parties that had dominated through the, through the civil war. And, and they had no incentive to do this because um, the, having an, an army that was dominated by their ethnic group um, was, uh, was really helpful in terms of mobilizing um, votes, in terms of protecting economic assets and monopolies, right, at the, at, uh, through the police forces, right? So there's really no interest for them in, in doing this um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so, you know, from 1995 until about 2001 or so, uh, you know, they, they, the international community sort of tried to push for def- different reforms and nothing really happened. Uh, and nothing happened despite in uh, you know late 1990s you start having nato and eu accession talks right and so especially on nato right the nato's kind of pushing for bosnia to start accession talks but you know they can't they 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 don't want uh, a, a country with two different armies right or three different armies um in nato so they say you know you need to do this nothing happens right it's just there, there's no interest whatsoever um what happens for the army is you have a couple of um, what we could call kind of uh, exogenous or uh, shocks. Um, one was an economic shock. Um, on the one hand, a lot of the the armies were being funded in large part through um, by uh, support um, from neighboring Serbia and and Croatia. Um, because of political changes in Croatia and Serbia, those funds start to dry up. Um, in 2000, around 2000 or so, um, the international community through OECD commissions this audit where they basically find that the, the armies are um, spending about three or four times what they're allocated in the budget. And if they continue on that, right, the governments are going to become bankrupt. So the enormous amount of financial pressure um, uh, you know, from the IMF to, to clean this up um, in order to clean up their, their fiscal house. The other thing that happens is this this scandal called the Orao Affair, which is basically members of the military in cooperation with kind of hardline ruling uh, members of the ruling party in the Republic of Srpska are caught selling equipment to military equipment to Iraq in contravention of the sanctions. Right. So this is 2001. This is kind of in the lead up uh, in the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Right, so the U.S. is is obviously very unhappy about this. It leads to a whole bunch of resignations within the ruling Serb party, the SDS. Um, and what happens as a result of these resignations uh, within Bosnia, um, the prime minister is become uh, is uh, becomes Dragan Chavic, and Chavic is this um, kind of moderate within the ruling SDS party. Right, this is this is a hardline kind of um, ethnic nationalist party, but he's sort of a moderate um, and he doesn't really have good relationships with all these hardliners in the military and in the party. Um, And he sees them as a real liability, 
right? And he sees the, that these hardliners are potentially will um, can remove him. They're also a liability in trying to move the country forward as he sees it. So he initiates quiet talks with um, the office of, of the high representative, um, and that opens up a whole series of negotiations um, where he basically he you know he doesn't commit to anything, but he says I'm open to negotiate. Right? That that opens the door. There's a whole series of negotiations between the three ethnic groups and the high representatives um, that eventually leads to this set of defense reforms. Um, the the kind of carrot of NATO is a big factor here, right? But um, initially, right, the Serbs weren't really interested in NATO, right? But it was only because of this internal split within the Serb ruling party um, and the Serbs being sort of the most opposed to these kinds of changes um, that this that these um, talks could even start, right? So you still have these kind of this cohesive ruling party, but it's because of this internal split that um, an opening happens. Um, and in the book, I go into all the details of how this plays out um, through the defense reform. Uh, with the police, right? So, you know, at, at, once the defense reform happens, um, the high representative, right, so Patty Ashdown at the time, uh, says, well, hey, let's do this with the police, right? And the police is even worse. Again, you've got, you know, 13 different police forces. So let's let's try to unify the police, right? So so by the way, with, with the army, what they ended up doing was unifying into a, a single army under a single minister of defense, um, a whole series of kind of innovative compromises to, to deal with, with ethnic issues within that. So they say, let's do the same thing with the police. And the police doesn't happen. And, and the reason this doesn't happen is because you don't have that same kind of internal political opening. Um, as I said, the police is also harder. Uh, the police is much more connected into day-to-day politics in terms of pre- protecting economic assets, in terms of all these kind of local level politics. Um, and so, and and you don't have that kind of political opening. In fact, especially within um, the Republic of Srpska, uh, the leadership ends up really closing ranks um, around. You know, we did this with the military. Um, we're not doing this again with the police. The police is more important. This is a sort of national institution. Um, and I, you know, talked to politicians. Uh, you know, sort of saying, you know, this this would have just been suicide politically to to try to do this. Um, and so, um, and so you don't have that kind of split within the ruling party. In fact, you have, you have kind of closing ranks within this cohesive party. And so the OHR comes and says, look, now we've got the carrot of the EU. If you want to join the EU, you have, you know, you have to do all this stuff. And there's this sort of series of repeated negotiations. They keep on failing and failing and failing. Um, they make some kind of cosmetic changes, but they're never able to make the reforms, um, in the police, um, because they don't have that internal political opening really important, I think, to understand the differences there. And in fact, it's one point I'd love to pick up on and kind of create a thread a bit to your third case study, the idea of external actors not just having influence, but as you mentioned with Bosnia, having even some amount of sovereignty, and yet the puzzle is still there, right? It doesn't, it's more than, that's not enough necessarily for external actors to get everything they want. But if we take that thread and pull it into your next case study, in Timor-Leste, security governance is in fact even more under the control of external actors than in Bosnia. So what happens there with security governance in terms of both the army and the police? Yeah, so um, it, what's what's interesting to, to note about that point about uh, external actors having sovereignty um, in fact, that's that's that is the case um, in, in Timor Leste. And what's important is that even when external actors have formal sovereignty, 
they can't get things done on their own, right? And that's especially in in institutions like the security sector, but but probably any governing institutions, because at the end of the day, local actors are going to have to um, maybe adopt the programs, and even if the international actors can can uh, you know adopt decrees or um, uh, or laws and, and impose them, they're still going to have to implement them, right? They're the ones who are going to have to live with them, right? So if they can't get international actors to agree to these laws. It really is meaningless, and 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 international actors are very aware of this, and so are trying to kind of get, you know, it's not enough to say you will do this. They have to get local actors to in, in development speak, right? They have to get them to own the reforms, um, and that's the real challenge here. So Timor Leste is, um, in my book, it really shows the effect of resource rents, um, because there's a major change in in Timor Leste over the course of the time period that I look at it from 2000. One to uh, 2012, um, in which the, they start um, exploiting oil, um, and that creates a major kind of political change that plays out very clearly in the in the security forces, right? So, so the brief background on, on Timor is right, so Timor was under um, Indonesian uh, rule since the 1970s. There was kind of long term insurgency. Um, in 1999, there's a referendum, and uh, Indonesia turns over sovereignty. Uh, to a U- transitional UN administration, which r- rules the country until about 2002, and then sort of gradually hands over sovereignty um, back to Timor. Um, as part of the UN administration, right, they build institutions. So they build a police force, uh, and um, and they they start building an army as, as well, the, the FFDTL. Um, what I focus on in my book uh, is the police, and what I do is I look at the development of the police and kind of the the period from 2001, 2000 or so to 2005. Um, in 2005, the UN pulls out. In 2006, there's kind of a, 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 con- a violent conflict or violence within Timor. The government basically collapses. The UN comes back in 2006 and then kind of reasserts sovereignty over the police specifically and tries to, to kind of rebuild it and reform it until about 2012. So I compare those sort of first, those two periods of, of UN sovereignty. Um so in the first period, um, the UN basically accomplished a lot of what it was trying to do, right? It set up a new police force, it, it trained uh, new officers, it recruited and trained them, um, it, it set up the, the basic structures. Um, it, you know, the, 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 the situation in Timor allowed them to do that in large part because Timor was completely, completely dependent uh, financially over uh, from the international community, right? So not only did it have sovereignty, but basically the, the international community was funding everything. Um, and so that kind of gave them a lot of leverage. Um, at the same time, sort of uh, politically, um, you had a, a society that was actually quite fragmented among different groups, um, but you had this sort of dominant cohesive political force, which was the Fredolin political party. So the Fredolin party was the party that had sort of led the insurgency o- over the course of, of time. Um, they come, you know, so, so there's some people in Timor, there's some people who come back from exile, and they sort of have sort of overwhelming popularity. Uh, there's an election and a constituent assembly. They win the election overwhelmingly, right? And the leadership of Fredolin tries to sort of impose itself um, over the government and the security security forces, right? So this is where you start to see kind of the first limits of what the UN is trying to do, right? So the UN is doing sort of putting in place a police force. They don't do enough and they're, they're, they're kind of widely criticized later on for not doing enough of the governance piece over the police in terms of uh, the, you know, oversight mechanisms and recruitment and, and so forth. 
um, in part because Fredolin is sort of working against it because what they want is to be able to dominate for, for um, Fredolin to be able to dominate the police. And so you see that kind of influence um, starting to creep in, especially as the UN uh, starts to pull out uh, after 2002. Um, but overall, you know, the, the UN sort of gets most of what they want done. Um, but then what happens in 2005 is the, is the um, oil wealth starts coming online, right? So these are oil fields that were disputed with Australia. There's an agreement. Um, and around 2005 or so, the oil starts coming online. Uh, 2006, 2007 is where it really starts um, funding the government. And even before it comes online, um, you start to see this fragmentation sort of under the surface in Fredolin, right? So Fredolin seems like this cohesive group. It's actually quite fragmented. There is this major split um, between people who were in exile uh, in, in Portugal and elsewhere and people who were in the country sort of dating back his, historically. Um, so people like the um, the, the Prime Minister Al-Khatiri, who represents the, who is the Prime Minister, who represents sort of the exile, and Shanana Guzmao, who is sort of the in-country um, leader. Um, and as the oil revenue is coming online, people start jockeying, right? Because it becomes very clear that whoever is sort of in control of these security forces is going to have a lot of influence. Um, and that jockeying really intensifies um, until 2006, where you have open violence between factions of the military and police force, which causes the government to collapse um, and uh, um, UN to come back in. And that's a oversimplification of a complicated story, but that's basically what happens, but which triggers sort of the next part of the story, uh, which is that um, in 2006, the UN comes back with a new UN mission, UNMIT, which has the the mandate to kind of take over the police and and restructure it. Um, The situation, however, has fundamentally changed in that the government uh, budget has uh, increased over tenfold with oil revenue and they really just don't need the international community anymore. They don't want the international community. They see it as partly responsible for um, the, the failure. And they also just don't need it because they have their own resources. Um, and so that really undermines um, any influence. So, you know, the, the, what, what happens is the UN sort of trying to impose all of these changes. And for the most part, the Timorese government sort of ignoring them um, or, you know, implementing some at the margins, but then I- ignoring a lot and a lot of frustrated uh, members of the international community. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, because at the same time as there's this uh, resource strategy, um, it is a very fra- it is very fragmented. Right. So in, in 2007, um, the Shanana kind of Gusmao creates a, a breakaway party, splits off um, from Fredolin and, and creates a coalition government of different parties, right? And his strategy is to use the oil revenue, um, distribute oil revenue through contracts, through, through um, subsidies, through pensions, through all these ways, basically to kind of keep people happy, to keep the peace um, by distributing revenue, including by spending uh, enormous amounts in the security forces to buy all kinds of uh, equipment and whatnot in ways the international community really thinks is, is problematic. Um, but there is that sort of constant play. And in some cases, you know, the members of the international community, which is not just the UN, there's the Australians, the Americans, the Portuguese, right, are in there. And they're, you know, they're helpful in supporting individual actors. Um, and through that, there are um, a number of different reforms. They do kind of a, a merit-based recruitment system. They create a new exam. Um, but a lot of it is sort of despite what the international community um, and especially the UN is trying to do. Um, and so you have this much more kind of mixed picture um, of, you know, a, a police force that's developing in ways that respond to its own political reality, 
um, but much less so um, to, to what the international community is trying to do, despite you know, what they have is formal sovereignty, right? So from 2007, 2011, right? 2011, they actually formally hand over the police, right? Um, which from the Timor's perspective sort of is, is meaningless because they never actually um, really control them um, and, and, and had, didn't have a whole lot of influence. Hmm. And that's, again, um, due to the uh, con- political conditions and the, lack, the real lack of alignment uh, of interest um, at the time between domestic political actors and international actors. So one of the common threads then in that case, but across the other ones as well, is this idea of the importance of the internal political conditions in some senses, kind of almost no matter what the external actors want. To what extent would you consider the internal political conditions to be the most important factor in explaining how security governance develops? So absolutely, I, I, it, it is that, and that's the point. I mean, it's it's not the only factor, but I do think it is it is the most important factor, and that's for I think two two main reasons. Um, one is that security institutions are political, right? So we often think of police and, and military and security forces as being this sort of functional organization, right? It's there to serve a purpose. It's there to keep us safe, to to serve as a common defense, um, and that is one of its purposes. But in much of the world, it also serves other purposes other functions which are political, right? They're there to keep, it's there to keep politicians in power through the kinds of appointments, through the kinds of resources, through the kinds of procurements, um, through the kinds of operations and deployments that it does, right? It has a very political function, right? So so in order to understand um, how it evolves and what it does, we need to understand its political function and how that political function fits into the political context in terms of the kind of political party, the kinds of networks, the kinds of resources that it has to stay in power. so that's the first reason, you know, why it's, why it's important to understand that, right? And that gets us, you know, kind of into some implications, right? If you look at, um, you know, what's going on, you know, recent sort of series of, of coups in West Africa, um, despite sort of international assistance, well, we need to understand more about sort of what, what, you know, what, what the military's role there is in politics. And I think it becomes a lot clearer. Um, the second reason that politics is important um, is is because it, it shapes the interactions with international actors, right? And I think what, what the book is trying to do is sort of complicate this idea of peace building as either some sort of, you know, just it's just there to help, right? Or it's there to coerce. It's actually more complicated than that, right? Um, what peace building or international actors are doing is they're playing a political role within um, a domestic political context, Right. They're helping certain actors accomplish their goals. They're trying. They're preventing other actors from accomplishing their goals. Right? It's being used or instrumentalized in political ways, in some ways that are that are against what international actors are trying to do, but sometimes that are consistent with inter- what international actors are trying to do. Right? So there's this kind of notion that um, you know what international assistance does is despite politics, right? That it achieves its goals, you know, in opposition to politics. In, in fact, when it works, it's because of politics, right? It's because of the the political openings that exist within a country. And so it's important to understand this. Absolutely. If we think about extending um, your work, you mentioned military coups just then. I'm wondering if maybe we can discuss the extent to which you think that your theory and findings apply, not just after civil wars, but perhaps during as well? Yeah. In in the um, one of the chapters in, in the book, I look at extending the argument um, both through a, a quantitative analysis beyond the case studies, um, but also I do these shadow case studies where I look at four countries 
that are experiencing ongoing conflicts uh, and look at how and, and international actors are trying to influence their security institutions and look at the effects of those. So I, it's sort of very brief, um, but I, I've looked at some of those cases broadly. Right. So the cases in there are Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia and South Sudan. Um, and in just very briefly, um, what I find is, yes, politics do matter. Um, and I, I look very briefly at how uh, the fragmentation of political networks and, and rent distribution does shape kind of how um, the security forces are involved and what international actors are able to do um, and find, you know, really very similar stories. And I'm not going to go into each one of these right now, um, but with a couple of caveats, I would say, um, and, and a couple, I think, important uh, insights. Uh, one is that, right, so in, in cases where you have total state collapse, and, and it's really the case of Somalia, um, the argument is it doesn't quite apply. And that's because um, a lot of the comp- – so this is the, the argument is about um, political actors competing over resources and, and, and authority. Um, in Somalia, a lot of that action is happening outside of the state, right? The, the Somali state, you know, from – and we're talking sort of from 2012 where you have a official Somali state, right, supported by international actors. But, comp- but actors are controlling territory outside of the scope of the state in, 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 in many cases. And so you do have – this kind of competition over um, the security forces, but a a lot of the different factions are are really doing it outside of it, right? So where you don't have kind of a a central state to compete over, right? The argument's not likely to apply. Um, Other kinds of differences. So so what, in in terms of these kinds of big reforms, I think what you do see is that it's more likely after some kind of political transition, right? So these post-Civil War cases are cases in which the political and the institutional status quo is kind of up for transformation. Uh, there's a peace agreement or, you know, there's a victory by one side or other side comes into power or, or whatever it is, right? Creates an opportunity for different actors, for rules to change, for different actors to kind of uh, in, influence things in, in ways that are much harder to achieve in the absence of political transition. Um, it doesn't mean it's not possible. Uh, and and I think the, the, the kind of core aspect of the argument, which is that, um, we need to understand kind of what the the political networks are uh, and resources and where security forces fit into that. It does apply. Um, but the, you know, whether sort of fragmented networks and, and uh, rent, uh, you know, abscess of, of resource rents leads to institutional change, I think is, is partly conditional on some sort of political transition. Um, the other uh, difference that you have in many cases is, is the role of the international community. Uh, the, the cases I look at in the book are these sort of large intensive UN cases. Um, you have, uh, w- we have international actors operating in the security spaces in many other different contexts, uh, to try to influence institutions. Um, but w- with, in, without the level of support from international actors, it's, it's, it's often harder to make, uh, big institutional changes. Right, um, especially if if the the military especially has has some has some power and ability to resist it, uh, there's always a risk of coups. Um, there are many examples and cases of civilian governments trying to impose changes on their own without external support and then falling victim victim to a coup. Um, so, to the extent to which there's external support to try to um, w- whether that th- to try to support um, a, a regime trying to make reforms in the face of potential backlash, that's an enabling factor where you don't have that, it becomes more difficult. Um, and I think this, this sort of partly speaks to, uh, you know, what, what's been happening in, um, in say Niger, 
uh, where you know Niger has had increasing U.S. support to the military, um, but not necessarily to kind of the civilian government. Not much emphasis on the kind of uh, you know civilian oversight and security governance aspects, um, and so. Um, the the relationship between the military and the civilian is is much more uh, complicated, um, and so um, you know that's that's where uh, um, you know the 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 I think the third part of the argument and that the, the kind of level of external support is also important, um, and that varies quite a lot, right? It doesn't mean it's impossible, and, I, and you do have cases of reform outside of uh, big post post conflict cases, um, but I think it's important to look at that. It's also important to look at that increasingly. In the, internet, in the international system where you have the number of actors is proliferating, um, the kind of intensity of assistance, right? The coherence is, is really um, falling apart. Um, and so looking at the internet, the international piece is becoming much more important now as well. Mm, very much so. Um, staying on the theme of kind of how this theory, uh, how your findings can be applied uh, and staying as well on the practical element of it before we turn to the theoretical what relevance do you think your findings have for policy and practice? Yeah, so um, I've I've you know spoken to a number of people uh, in in government about this. I mean, one of the things I, I think the sort of central uh, thing um, insight that comes out of it is is the need to understand internal politics, as we've talked talked about. Uh, there's a concept in international development called political economy analysis, which is said to say we need to understand a bit about the political situation in in a country to understand how. Uh, proposed reforms are, are going to work. Um, there is sort of some interest in the security space to do this, but generally in the security assistance world, uh, there is much less attention to what are the political dynamics within a country. Uh, it's more about what are our security objectives and you know how can we maintain relationships without kind of understanding how those relationships are inter- interacting within a political context. Um, so I think the, the, the first implication is really that in engaging with uh, countries on security assistance, it's really important to do some, you know, it's, it's some basic analysis, you know, who are the actors, what are the parties, what are their networks, how do the security forces fit in, and to just go through that kind of analysis to understand how international assistance might be fitting into that. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot, there, there's kind of, uh, you know, techniques and tools and stuff to do that um, international assistance. And I think, so that's, that's, I think, one insight. Um Another insight is to think of, about the trade-offs in allocating assistance, right? So to the extent that we can get a sense of that there are openings in one place or not openings in, in another, or that assistance is going to empower one group of actors and, and not a, another group of actors um, because you have different actors within a country, uh, I think it's important to think about and think through those, those possibilities as governments think about allocating aid, right? Um, is it, you know, make sense to work in country A, um, given what we know about the politics there, right? And if the decision is, well, this is this country is a strategic priority, therefore we need to work with it. Well, that's that's so so that's you know that's a totally legitimate decision. But then let's try to understand kind of what the trade offs are and what we need to manage, right? So I'm trying to um, bring those into decision making on the allocation of aid. I think is important. Um, and the third piece is 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 understanding how. Um, aid programs are managed and how they work on the ground. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the case studies, I think, have a lot of really sort of interesting insights about the kinds of political roles that international actors are playing in these contexts. 
Um, they're not just providing technical assistance. They're not just providing training. They're also playing political roles. And that plays out in the way that agree, um, aid agreements are structured, right? Um, putting, say, conditions or commitments um, at the beginning or the end uh, of uh, there. And there's a lot of debate in the international community about, um, you know, do we sort of create kind of uh, preconditions, right? We only allocate aid once certain conditions have been met, or do we impose conditions on on aid, right? Those are political discussions which which occur within a country, and I think that the sort of do, go, going through those political negotiations are important. Um, it's understanding about the sources of leverage. Um, one of the things that this book really, I think, tries to bring out is that leverage is due not only to what international actors have, but what to, to, to um, actors and recipient states have, right? Um, and the kinds of uh, internal politics that they have affects our lever- you know, international actors' leverage relative to, to them. And so trying to understand those sources of leverage. Um, and ultimately, it it's really comes down to relationships. Uh, I, I, had, I had sort of so many fascinating conversations with uh, UN and other uh, foreign advisors in these places. And one of them struck with me, um, which was, uh, a, uh, I think he was a British uh, police advisor, who was a police chief in his hometown, he said, you know, I was a police chief in my hometown. You know, a lot of what I did was politics, right? I was dealing with the mayor. I was dealing with the city council. I was, you know, trying to manage sort of all these different relationships. And, you know, when I'm dealing with police in, in Liberia, this is in Liberia, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sharing that experience and sort of helping them navigate that, right? And, you know, in, in order to do that, I need to develop relationships. I need to develop trust, right? And understand how kind of their relationships are interacting, Right. And I think those relationships are, are central. Um, they're often not the main focus of what international actors are trying to do when they design programs. Um, but but I think there are ways to think about putting them more kind of at the center of, of international development programs. Thank you for that. Um, as I mentioned, I did also want to ask about the theoretical implications. So, I mean, that's obviously a lot of things already on the practical side. Is there anything you'd like to add on the theoretical uh, yes, um, <laughs> there's, there's always more, all right. So, so sort of kind of sticking on this kind of, you know, bargaining and leverage, uh, theme. So a, a lot of the, the, the work on security assistance right now, um, and on international development, especially on security assistance, uh, thinks is, is conceptualizes the relationship between donors and recipients, right? Between ex- external actors and, and the countries receiving the aid um, through a kind of bargaining framework or an organizational framework. A lot of it draws on principal agent theory, um, which is understanding kind of how information dynamics um, shape those relationships. Um, and I think what, one of the things that those models are missing is an understanding of how internal politics are shaping um, both the information environment and the leverage on the opportunities for influence. Um, so I think sort of one theoretical implication is, is sort of bringing domestic politics kind of into these bargaining models much more explicitly um, in trying to understand the relationship between uh, external actors and, and domestic actors and, and where influence comes from. Uh, you know, this, this sort of harkens back to, you know, some sort of three-level game models, right, which, which um, are, are complicated and rely on kind of institutions. Um, and the other thing to, to, I think, keep in mind in this is that when we're talking about domestic politics, we're not only talking about institutions, we're talking about informal networks and relationships, which is how politics really operate in these systems, right? So um, it's not only bringing domestic politics, but bringing that kind of informal type of politics that, that is prevalent in many developing countries into these models. Um, 
I, I think the other, uh, another sort of implication is um, about understanding uh, the politics of security forces and of civil military relations. Um, again, a lot of civil military relations theory and literature is sort of drawn on this kind of uh, based on uh, development of institutions in, in Western democratic contexts. Um, and, and one of the things I try to do in this book is, is try to understand and, and kind of really pick apart uh, the, the way that these institutions work in different contexts and the way that they're embedded and, and rooted in politics. Um, and um, hopefully, you know, my, my book will kind of help contribute to that as well. Absolutely. This is obviously a massive amount of work that you've put into this um, and given us a highlights tour that I think a lot of people will go, oh, okay, hang on, I need to get into the details of this and read further. Um, And they can do that because the book is done. You're no longer having to work on it. Um, So as my final question, is there anything you might be looking to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for our listeners? Ah, sure. So yes, the book is done. It's out. It's available, and uh, um, you know, you know, you all should read it. Uh, in terms of what I'm working on now, so I'm I'm taking uh, some of the ideas uh, from the book or, or things that came out of it in a couple of different directions. So one is I'm I'm doing a closer look at U.S. military aid or military aid general, but starting with the U.S. because in part because um, there is some data on U.S. military aid. Um, it's imperfect data that we're sort of trying to work on, but there is at least some data. Um, and, and the question is, uh, what what are the effects of military aid, um, not only in terms of institutions, but in terms of outcomes like human rights and, and, and conflict and violence? Um, and uh, again, the, the, the literature here has really focused on kind of this sort of bargaining relationship between donors and recipients. Um, and what I'm trying to do is, is sort of taking a deeper dive into military aid, not just in post-conflict, but r- really across different types of contexts. Um, in terms of, on the one hand, breaking apart what types of aid are being given. Uh, so, you know, d- depending on if it's equipment or training or uh, at more educational, right, or focus on governance or more kind of operational capabilities, um, what that looks like but also trying to use these insights about internal politics and institutions to understand how the political and institutional context is shaping the effects of military aid. Uh, So, you know, getting back to kind of these, like the, the, the case of Niger, right. Why is it um, that after kind of increasing U S security aid over the last few years um, now we see a coup d'etat, right? Is it because uh, we didn't have the U S didn't have any influence there or is it because they had too much influence, right? What is it about the institutional and political context um, that made Niger vulnerable to, um, to, to, to a coup d'etat and this kind of outcome? And how did U.S. military aid fit into that? Um, looking also kind of, you know, deeper dive on a case like Iraq, right, which was sort of one of the most intensive cases of, of, of U.S. military aid, um, looking at internal politics shaped outcomes there, right? So really trying to understand the effects of U.S. military aid, um, and then hopefully broadening beyond that to other countries' uh, security aid as a tool of influence. I mean, military aid, I think, has become um, increasingly a prominent tool of policy, um, uh, especially w- with with the idea that uh, you know we you know the U.S. and other countries don't want to intervene militarily yet. 
we tried to work with other countries, um, militaries, and there's a lot of questions about what that does, what the influence, you know, how that, what the influence of it is and how that works. So trying to pick that out and understand how institutional context affects that. So that's kind of one sort of project, which I'm sort of, you know, going at in, in different directions. Um, another set of, of, of work is going more on focusing on the police. Um, uh, in, in, um, where I'm, I'm looking at how police organizations are reflect politics at the national and also at the subnational uh, local level. Um, so I've been doing kind of a series of, of projects in, in Colombia, uh, uh, looking at um, police there. Colombia is an interesting situation because there's a peace accord. There's a lot of international. This is, this, there, there, there have been some real efforts um, of, at, at um, institutional change, both on the military and police side. Um, and so we're doing a, a series of, of surveys looking at public perceptions, but also um, police kind of perceptions of, of, uh, of, of why, how they're, um, how, uh, police, uh, how police are received, um, why people trust the police, um, with trying to, to pick apart, you know, from the perspective of decision makers, right, politicians in these contexts who are making decisions on, you know, what the police should look like and how, you know, what are the kinds of pressures that are affecting um, uh, police institutions. And, and Colombia is an interesting case because there is a lot of change afoot. There's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, democratic, although, you know, uh, evolving uh, democratic context. Um, so we're looking at that, but I hope to expand that to look at other cases uh, of understanding kind of much more in depth of how the police operate, why they operate the way they do, um, their role in, in conflict uh, affected countries, um, and also the in- interactions with um, public. And so part of that is, is getting into more kind of survey research on, on policing. Um, and related to that as well, uh, looking at policing in kind of high crime, organized crime context um, in places where uh, organized criminal organizations um, are uh, a main um, political actor, an economic actor. All right. So um, I've looked at this, especially in Central America and in Honduras, um, where uh, uh, organized criminal actors, are major actors and that they've clearly influenced the way that security policy is being done. Um, and so how that shapes uh, policing and security in those contexts as well. So those are kind of three things I'm working on right now and, you know, lots, lots more in, in the future as well. Great projects. Thank you very much for the preview. Um, and while you're working on all of them, whether, you know, survey day or whatever you might be getting your hands into, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Governing Security After War, The Politics of Institutional Change in the Security Sector, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Alex, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. You're very welcome. It was, it was a real pleasure. And, and thank you very much for having me. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.